0: Okay, we're looking at the book of Revelation, uh, the first part of Revelation. Um, I think it's chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus says to John, write what you see, both the things that already are, and the things that are to happen afterwards. The things that already are are referred to in the letters, the seven letters to the churches. In the province of Asia and it's those seven churches the letters to the seven churches that we're looking at. There were many other churches in Asia at the time and these seven that were picked in Revelation aren't necessarily the most well-known but there was a reason that they were picked. The number seven is very significant because it represents completeness. And it's believed that these seven churches were chosen because they represent conditions that will be seen throughout the church age, throughout church history from beginning to end. The sequencing of the letters basically follows a roughly semicircular route um, based on a a Roman postal system, I, I believe, starting in the southwest of Asia, which it's now West Turkey. Um, Starting in Ephesus, going north to Smyrna, which you'll hear about later when John is able to preach. Uh, Then coming up to Pergamum. And then it arcs across to the the east and then south to the other churches, finishing at Laodicea. So we're looking tonight at the church at Pergamum. And we find the letter in Revelation chapter 2. Verses 12 to 17. Have we got that on a slide of that? To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon, soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. <clears throat> I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The church at Pergamum contrasts sharply with the church at Smyrna, which you didn't hear about last week, but you will soon. Smyrna was the church that was enduring persecution. Pergamum is the church that is facing enticement and corruption. And in these two churches, we see how the devil has two ways of seeking to control Christians. He'll either try and make you knuckle under with hostility and persecution. And if that doesn't work, if that fails, he'll entice you or lure you into something dangerous and corrupt. It's either intimidation or enticement. It's either the violence of the roaring lion or the corruption of an angel of light. And Pergamum was the church that was being undermined by corrupt practices and corrupt teaching. The modern city of Bergama in northwest Turkey is the location of ancient Pergamum. It's 15 miles from the coast of the Aegean Sea. It has distant views of Lesbos and the hills around Smyrna. It's a beautiful place. It's the oldest city of the province of Asia. Its name means a citadel, and the city was preeminently that. It was built on a cone shaped hill rising 1,000 feet above the Caicos plain below, and it was the perfect seat for the, the official seat for Roman government, and it was the capital city of Asia. The oldest part of the city was the Acropolis, considerably steeper and higher than the Acropolis in Athens. And on this Acropolis was a majestic array of temples, pagan temples. Pergamum was the center of worship for all sorts of pagan deities. Dionysus, Athene, Asclepios... The God of healing apparently and Jesus describes Pergamum as the place where Satan has his throne the place where Satan rules and the place the city where Satan lives that is where he has his headquarters. Many scholars believe that Satan's throne is a reference to To the great altar of Zeus that sat on top of the Acropolis. The structure consists of a U-shaped temple with a huge array of steps leading up to a great altar. That's it there. Fascinating footnote of history here. In 1871, a German archaeologist working in the city of Pergamum found this great temple to Zeus. He removed it from the hillside, took it to Europe, and reconstructed it. For 140 years, Satan's throne has been in Pergamum Museum in East Berlin. And it was in East Berlin that Hitler had his headquarters. Truly still a place of evil. So back to Pergamum. Lots of Roman deities, but at the time of writing Revelation, the fastest growing religion was the worship of the Emperor Caesar. And Pergamum was the official centre for emperor worship in Asia. The first temple of the imperial cult was constructed in 29 BC and its test of loyalty was formal incense burning at the foot of Caesar's statue. Imagine what that was like for first century inhabitants of Pergamum. They must have been so proud of everything that was going on there. It was an incredible place to be. But for the little Christian community, come in. The little Christian community, it represented a huge threat. And it appears that some of those in the Christian community weren't coping terribly well with that threat. For perhaps 20 years before the writing of Revelation, Christianity had been officially condemned by Rome as dangerous. You can imagine that caused a serious clash between the state and the church. Some Christians in Pergamum faced the challenge to deny Jesus by refusing to do so. And for those, the Lord has great commendation. Sorry, good, thanks. First, Jesus says, you remain true to my name. These people have refused to budge on their view of Jesus. They held to the fact that Jesus was the God-man Combining in one person two natures, both God and man. That's orthodox doctrine. It's been the doctrine of the church from the very beginning and it's clearly backed up in scripture. Some things never change, do they? Almost all heresies today, when you think about it, flow out of the denial of the deity of Jesus. For the Christian, the the deity of Jesus is undeniable. But we mustn't deny his humanity either. Both are true. Some in the church of Pergamum had held fast to that teaching. And the second commendation of Jesus is that they were doing this at the risk of their own lives. He says, you didn't renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives? We don't know much about Antipas, although it is said that he was the first martyr of the church in, of Roman persecution in Asia. Tradition says that he was slowly roasted to death in a brazen kettle in the reign of Domitian. Not a good way to go. His name means against all. And he certainly had to stand against all. My faithful witness, Jesus said, he remained true to his saviour. But there were others in the church at Pergamum who perhaps even reacting to what happened to Antipas, they weren't keen to stand out. Can you imagine what it was like for the Christians whose daily lot was to live so close to all of this mingled cults of paganism. It must have seemed like the very centre of evil. Incredibly oppressive. Especially when the threat of arrest and death hung over those who disagreed with the worship of Caesar. In some parts of the world today, the threat of arrest and death remains A reality for Christians. Thankfully not for us in the UK. And we may not be aware of many pagan cults around us. But we're surrounded by other forms of adultery. Materialism, hedonism, sexual promiscuity and exploitation. Selfishness, the rejection of God and godly values. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes regardless of anybody else. In our society, Christians are the minority, just as they were in Pergamum. So how is a Christian meant to live in a city like Pergamum? What should a Christian or could a Christian do? I wonder how many anxious discussions and various teachings there were in the church at this time. You can just imagine, should we take part in the normal public civic life? Especially when it involved festivities for false gods. Is there a way in which we might just about do enough to stay under the radar whilst drawing back into full involvement? Paul addressed these sorts of issues in two letters. When you get time, if you're interested in looking, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 and Romans chapter 14. He gave very careful but nuanced advice. He said, there should be no compromise with pagan temples or cults. But he gave a bit of flexibility when it came to eating meat offered to idols. At this point, it appears that some in the Church of Pergamum have taken that bit of permitted flexibility all the way into cultural assimilation, thinking mm, there's no point in standing out. We're part of this society, so let's just go with the floor. And for those, Jesus has some firm words of censure. He denounces two terrible and similar errors which are undermining the church. One is called the teaching of Balaam. You can read about Balaam in Numbers chapter 25. Balaam was a false prophet who'd been hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab. Basically, Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, blessings came out of his mouth. God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. However, Balaam wanted the prize that Balak had offered him. And so where direct spiritual attack, that is the curse, failed, he looked for something a bit more subtle. A subtle temptation. And as is often the case, that was a sexual temptation. He hired quite a lot of maidens from Moab and Midian to parade before the young men of Israel. And they were tempted and they entered into sexual immorality. But these women were also worshippers of idols. And by that means, Balaam achieved his purpose and he introduced idol worship into Israel. Balaam is a fitting prototype of corrupt teachers who deceive believers into compromise with worldliness. The second error was that they were being seduced by the error of the Nicolaitans. Some have suggested, some scholars have suggested that in their original languages, Balaam and Nicholas mean the same thing. So it may be that the Nicolaitans are in fact a small group who are teaching something similar to this teaching of Balaam. The name Nicolaitans means conquering the laity. Apparently they claimed some sort of superior status. They had more knowledge of certain things they they said. And that knowledge permitted idolatry and immorality. Bishop Arrhenius in the second century said that they were followers of Nicholas of Antioch, a proselyte who was among the seven men chosen to serve the Jerusalem congregation. You can read about that in Acts chapter six, verse five. His name is in there. But Arrhenius said that he'd forsaken true Christian doctrine and lived in unrestrained indulgence. In Acts chapter 15, we read about the Jerusalem Council, which had laid down two specific conditions for Gentiles who were being admitted to the Christian fellowship. One was to abstain from things that were offered to idols. And two was to abstain from sexual sin. These were the very regulations that the Nicolaitans were violating. They were attempting to establish a compromise with their pagan Greco-Roman society where eating meat offered to, to idols was the absolute norm and sexual relations outside of marriage was completely acceptable. But the Nicolaitans wanted to blend in with their society. So they used their Christian liberty as an occasion for the flesh, completely ignoring clear apostolic teaching and for these the lord has correction he says repent therefore otherwise i will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth repent therefore repentance is all about our posture before god the way we approach god it's about the continual cleansing of our lives through jesus It's about our desire to do things God's way, not our way. Repentance is an opportunity to invite God into your life. And when Jesus said, I will soon come to you, he used the present tense. He wasn't referring to the second coming. He's referring to a spiritual coming in judgment to that church. And the Lord identifies himself as the one with the sharp double-edged sword. Can you imagine a sharp double-edged sword in somebody's mouth? This isn't what Jesus will look like at his second coming. When we see him in glory, he's not going to have a sharp double-edged sword in his mouth. It is a symbol, there are so many symbols in Revelation. It's a symbol of the word of God on the lips of Jesus. And Jesus' response to this compromising church is clear. He says, the Roman governor may wield the sword, but I, Jesus, I have the two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And my word will cut through any half-hearted spirituality that's happy to face both ways at the same time. The church at Pergamum is told to repent because it's lost its cutting edge. Some Christians have lost their ability to say no to their surrounding society. Yes, there was huge pressure to conform, to blend in, to assimilate into the surrounding culture instead of standing out. And don't we have the same challenge today? It's not easy to stand out in a world which broadly is hostile to the gospel message. I remember when I first got saved, Ooh, it's nearly 34 years ago now. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. After that weekend, I went in and the first thing I did was tell my boys what it, my boss what had happened at the weekend. And I told him how it had happened. His response was if you got any sense, you'll keep that to yourself. Don't tell don't tell anybody else that. If you want to go, uh, go forward in life, don't say things like that. Isn't that the temptation? Rather than standing out, it's easier for Christians to become a bit like a chameleon, that long-tailed lizard that changes color depending on its background. When you're in a Christian environment, you'll do Christian things, you'll act like a Christian. But when you leave the Christian environment, you move to change colour. Basically to be like everybody else around you. But trying to live like that creates a real tension in the life of a Christian. Jesus has told us, Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the purpose, to glorify our Father in heaven. That's why we're meant to stand out. Men like Antipas demonstrated this essential character, but not everyone in Pergamum had the Christian maturity which developed that type of faith. So what is it that makes such a faith possible? That allows a believer to go on believing when everything and everyone seems to be against him? In the Old Testament, Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, I believe, provide a model for a faithful testimony when they're facing threatening circumstances. And a key verse for me is in Daniel 2 chapter 11, verse 32. The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Daniel says, those whose faith will hold are those who really know their God. It's not enough to have an academic knowledge of God's attributes or a second-hand familiarity with his nature. Only first-hand knowledge will do this. Like the knowledge and confidence that a child has in a loving parent. So what does this type of faith look like? I'm going to suggest three things. Firstly, it's, the, it's a faith that is firmly rooted in who God is. Not who we are, not, who, not where we live. In the day of trial... Faith that depends on the conditions we live in will prove to be no faith at all. The faith that will last is faith that is anchored in the character and the person of God. It's not rooted in the believer, it's rooted in the believed. And those with this type of faith aren't necessarily strong people. They may even be weak and doubtful. But the difference isn't in them, it's in God. It isn't their belief that changes the world. It is the God who they believe in that changes the world. Secondly, this type of faith is rooted not only in the power of God, but in the goodness of God. God can be trusted. Antipas, Daniel, his three Hebrew friends, they all cast themselves wholly upon the sovereign power of God at work in history. They knew that the God of history operates in such a marvellous way that he uses even opposition to accomplish his will and purposes. Isn't that the story of the death of Jesus and the resurrection? These men of faith left the decision to rescue them or not in the hands of God they believed that God could deliver them from the circumstances but they were willing to die if he didn't because they knew that whatever God decides he will always show his goodness to us that he can be trusted that even in death we are safer with him than without him and thirdly this type of faith liberates us to love God For his person, not for his performance. I can come to God as my loving heavenly father who always wants the best for me. He's told me never to be afraid, no matter how angry or confused or distressed I might be. He's told me to bring my needs to him. I'm secure by his side. He knows me. He loves me. He hears my cry. He knows what's best for me. He's already done enough for me to demonstrate his love. And I know that I can throw myself on his mercy because he is the source of all goodness. The child of God who truly knows his God will also truly love his God. And Jesus finishes with a challenge followed by two promises. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Notice that both the manna and the name on the stone are both secret, the manna is hidden. The name's known only to the person who receives the stone. And I believe this is a picture of close intimacy. On Israel's wilderness journey, God fed his people with manna, bread that came down from heaven. But Jesus, in his ministry, said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is the hidden manna. He is food for the inner spirit, the food that others don't know about. We find in John chapter 4, the Lord sent his disciples into the city of Sychar to get food. And when they came back, they found that he'd been talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. And he told his disciples, I have food to eat that you know not about. And later he explained, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' highest priority wasn't natural food because he was feeding on the inner strength that Father God was giving him. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I got so excited about something that I didn't need to eat. I quite like eating. But in these verses, Jesus is saying, He's giving us a promise. Those who seek to resist the law of compromise and shine his light into this dark world, he says, I will give you food for the task or the trial. The place where you live may seem to be starving you, but I will give you hidden manna. And then the promise of the white stone with a new name written on it. There was a custom for people who were invited to a banquet or a feast to be given a stone with their name on it as an admission ticket. You can see the relevance of that in a future messianic banquet. But what's the name written on the stone here? I think, again, the fact that it's known only to the one who receives it suggests that this is a special sign of intimacy. Jesus promised to each faithful disciple is that you will enjoy an intimacy with him which becomes deeper and stronger. And I guess the challenging question for us, as it was to those in Pergamum, is how much do you love your Savior? The more I've looked at these seven letters, the more I've become convinced that they are really love letters from an absent groom to his waiting bride. To Ephesus, he said, you've lost your first love, but I want you back. To the persecuted church at Smyrna, he said, don't fear the persecution. Be faithful to me, even unto death. And to Pergamum, he said, you've been unfaithful, but I still want you. Turn around, turn back from it. Jesus promised to this compromised church that had known sexual immorality is the offer to replace that false intimacy with a genuine intimacy of spiritual union with himself. Are we going to have a a bit more music? Just as the band comes back, let me finish by repeating the challenge of Jesus. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This challenge is repeated seven times, once in each of the seven letters, and the repetition indicates how important this is. Jesus used similar words when he was here on earth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whenever Jesus sought to do something in a person's life, be it healing, teaching, revelation, whatever it was, he always made sure that he had their attention. He got them to focus their gaze on him. Why? Because it aroused a sense of expectation in them. Focusing on Jesus always quickens faith. The wise believer will take time regularly to focus on his Lord, to train his spiritual ears in order to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church and to him personally. Just as John said this morning, Expand your ability to hear God.